All right, we're going to be in the book of Revelation today, so if you've got a Bible, I invite you guys to turn there, or if you've got a device, you can go ahead and swipe there if you would like to do that. We are in a heavily symbolic section of Revelation right now, and a lot on God's wrath, like five chapters where God's wrath is just pervasive. And so uh, some real heavy stuff that we've got to work through here. Um, but it's in the Bible, and so it's for our good. And so, um, but one of, the, one of the things I want to remind us here as we get going this morning, just thinking about God's wrath and so forth, uh, I want to take us back to the beginning of Revelation to remind us what this whole book is about. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this book is intended to show us who Jesus is. Okay, it's, it's not just like this crazy, crazy cosmic story that just kind of blows our minds and makes us not want to read it because we can't figure it out. The point of this book is to show us Jesus. And, and so revelation here, the Greek word for revelation here, essentially, uh, it, it's apocalypsis. And, and that word essentially means um, that it's speaking about symbolism. So it's revealing Jesus to us in symbolic ways. So we can't sit down and read this book literally, apply it in the ways that we typically apply things that we're reading. So a lot of work to do to work through all of the symbols that are in this book. But then it also says here, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is, ri- what is written in it. Many people don't want to read Revelation, whether it's because it's scary or it's confusing. We just prefer to stay away from it. And yet, it tells us at the very beginning, those who read it are blessed. Those who hear it are blessed. And those who keep it, who believe what it's saying, are intended to be blessed. So that's our hope. It's part of the reason why we preach through this book is because of what it says right at the beginning here. Okay, so Revelation 16 is where we're going to be. I'm going to read through Revelation 16, and then we'll attack it. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve." And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. 
The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these words. I pray that they would make sense to us. I pray that we would see Jesus in them, and I pray that we would be transformed by your truth this morning. So God, have your way in this time. Have your way in our hearts. Uh, Help us to not be distracted by the many things this world has to offer, by all the busyness that maybe is on our plates, all the stressors that are out there awaiting us when we leave here. Help us to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay. You've probably never seen those verses on a coffee mug. Right? I'm guessing. No one has seen those verses on a coffee mug. There is some heaviness in these verses. But they do preach Jesus. So what I want to do today is I want to begin by looking from a 30,000-foot perspective, uh, make some general observations, and then we're going to hone in and we'll look at the specific plagues or bowls of wrath. So first, let's remember these are symbolic visions. Okay? So we should not be looking in the sky in expectation that a large angel is going to be holding a bowl and pouring out the contents of the bowl upon the earth. Okay? No matter how people read Revelation, interpret Revelation, typically they read these section, this section as symbolic. Okay? So we're not looking for angels in the sky pouring bowls out. That's not what's going on here. Secondly, A number of months ago, we preached on Revelation 8. And Revelation 8 is about trumpets, which are also forms of judgment. And at that time, we remarked about similarities between those trumpets, those trumpet judgments, and these bold judgments that we're talking about today. And as part of this observation, we noted how there's so much correlation between those trumpets in Revelation 8 and the bowls here in Revelation 16, as well as then the plagues that God employed in the exodus out of Egypt. Okay, so I want to throw up this slide here for us. The the exodus in Egypt was a salvation event. Okay, God comes to his people. He rescues them out of slavery, physical slavery. But this is pointing forward to a greater exodus, the exodus that Jesus brings about when Jesus rescues us from spiritual slavery. Okay, so we look back, the exodus In the book of Exodus, the Nile turns to blood. Today we're reading about seas and rivers turning to blood. Back in the Exodus, one of the plagues was boils and sores. And today we're reading about sores as well. Hail came down in Exodus. Uh, We didn't read the verses here because this was in uh, verse 21. And we covered that in a previous sermon already. But hail also is part of this dynamic here in Revelation 16. Uh, frogs were one of the plagues in the Exodus, and unclean spirits like frogs we see here in, in chapter 16. Darkness is in both. 
death of the firstborn and widespread death, so death is pervasive. And then back in the Exodus, there's the ten plagues, and here the bowls are referred to as plagues. So we need to see this correlation that's happening. The story that's happening in the Old Testament is the same story, just expanded and in a greater way of what we're reading in the New Testament here as well. So the Bible speaks on many occasions as to how the Exodus event was a precursor of God's ultimate salvation. It was pointing forward to a better, greater salvation that came to be through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Now, another observation that I want to make here, a correlation we see between the trumpets and bowls, is that of a building of God's wrath. Okay, if we go back to Revelation 8 in the trumpet judgments, what we repeatedly heard there was the number or the fraction one-third. Okay, so I want to look at this slide. Revelation 8, trumpet judgments, it said, when those trumpet judgments were poured out on the earth, a third of the earth and trees burned up. A third of the sea became blood. A third of sea creatures died and a third of ships were destroyed. A third of fresh water became bitter a third of the sun and moon and stars were struck. So what we're reading in Revelation 8 is about the limited nature of God's wrath. He's not fully and finally pouring out his wrath in those judgments. Those judgments that were being described in Revelation 8 are judgments that are happening, occurring here and now in our world today. But as we come to Revelation 16, and knowing that there's a number of chapters here that are picturing the finishing or the completion of God's wrath, we now see sores coming upon the people. Not some of the people, but the people. We also see the sea became like blood, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So notice it's not part of the sea, nor is it some of the living creatures. It's all of the sea, all of the water, all of the creatures that were in the water. So this is pointing to this reality that there's a finality to God's wrath. In Romans 1, it speaks of how God's wrath is revealed to us here and now. What we were talking about in those trumpet judgments back from Revelation 8. God's wrath is being effective, effected today in our world now. But there's an aspect that God's wrath is building to a climactic end. If God was pouring out his full and final wrath, we wouldn't be here. Everything would be destroyed. But that's not happening. So we are building towards this climactic end of God's wrath. We see this in other parts of the Bible. I'm just going to mention this one back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. God's talking to his people. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. So God had punished his people for their disobedience, but he's saying, if you continue in your disobedience, I'm going to strike you sevenfold. So the same idea that God's wrath is multiplied, it's increased. Okay, let's notice here then who God's wrath is directed at. In verse 2, it's very clear. It says that, Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So this is so important that we catch this detail because I, for myself, I've struggled with this and I know many others have. I've talked with many people who have struggled with this. 
have been terrified thinking God is going to just start whacking people willy-nilly. That that's how his wrath is going to play out in this world. And so he doesn't care. He's just swinging a stick at whomever. And it's just going to kind of catch whoever is in its path. That is far from true. That is not what's happening here in Revelation. If you're a Christian, you need to have no fear of God's wrath. No fear whatsoever of God's wrath. Jesus, on the cross, took God's wrath for you. It's a brutal, bloody scene that we see on the cross, and that is God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. We read about this over and over again in the Bible. Romans 5, 8, and 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The shedding of Jesus' blood is what saves us from God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come? Jesus delivers us, those trusting in him, from the wrath that is to come. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God explicitly put his, poured out his wrath on his Son so that it does not get poured out on those who are trusting in him. He is not destined, our destiny is not that we would experience God's wrath for those trusting in Jesus. It is that we would obtain salvation through Jesus' sacrificial death. And last here, John three thirty six, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And, and what we can fill in here then is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and the wrath of God has rested on Jesus for you. We need to robustly believe these truths. These verses must have a weightiness upon us and our hearts. God's wrath is reserved for those who are living in rebellion against God those who defy him, those who do not trust in him. This, then, is intended, for those trusting in Jesus, this is intended to be incomparably good news. That when you walk through your weeks, day after day, this should be the best news you hear. This should be freeing news for you. Whatever you encounter in your day-to-day, this wrath does not rest upon you. You don't, you don't have to fear this reality. And this is what we read when Jesus is introduced in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 2.10 says exactly this, and the angel said to them, fear not, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Jesus coming to the earth is intended to release us from fear, that we would not be scared of anything And that is because Jesus is good news of great joy. This is intended to be so good 
that it leads us to something that we read about here in Revelation 16, and that is repentance. The gospel is intended to be such good news that it leads us to turn away from sin. That's what repentance is, to turn away from sin, to turn away from our trust in anything other than Jesus, whether that be comfort or pleasure, uh, a life of ease and selfishness. It is a turning away from a life of self-serving individualism. Repentance is turning away from whatever it is that distracts us and garners our worship. A turning away from that and a turning towards Jesus, trusting and worshiping him. And Revelation 16 makes clear that God's wrath is for the unrepentance. It's falling on those who specifically did not repent and give God glory. They did not repent of their deeds. So, to not engage in this ongoing turning towards Jesus is to demonstrate that our faith is actually placed in something else, something other than Jesus. A Christian, someone who's trusting in Jesus, will repeatedly be turning towards Jesus and turning away from sin. Jesus told the church in Ephesus, so back near the beginning of Revelation, there's seven letters to churches. And one of those letters was to to the church in Ephesus. And he told the church in Ephesus, Jesus did, that if they did not turn towards Jesus, he was going to remove them altogether as a church. He was calling them to trust in him, to repent, to turn towards Jesus, and to turn away from sin. And so he tells that, that church, he told them that, but he tells us today to turn away from sin, to turn away from whatever it is that distracts us from Jesus and to turn towards Jesus. To not do so is to invite God's wrath upon us. So this should be a serious undertaking for us, this idea of turning away from sin. It's not something that we're casual about. It's not something that we do when it's convenient or we feel like it. This has to be the life. This is the life of a Christian, this continual, ongoing turning towards Jesus. Okay, those are a few big-picture items that I just wanted to to talk about within chapter 16 here, but now I want to take a little closer look at these plagues and pull a few things out here. So the first plague we read about here is harmful and painful sores. So we want to think about this symbolically, all right? Harmful and painful sores infers discomfort. It infers misery. So reading this symbolically allows us to see a broad scope of sores. Sores can look like many different things. It doesn't just need to be a sore on our body. We live in a world that is marked by many forms of misery. Addictions, financial woes, sicknesses, mental health. The list could go on and on. And I want to be really clear about this reality. Not all mental health concerns, not all sicknesses, not all financial woes are the result of God's wrath. But some probably are. And, and we see really clearly here in Revelation 16, verse 5, it says, you brought these 
judgments. So this angel is saying, speaking about God, you were the one who brought these judgments into this world and upon people. The tendency for us, I think at times, is to think that God is just this individual who is, he just kind of backed away from the world, and now the world is just kind of going to hell in a handbasket. But that's not who God is. God is intimately involved in this world. He cares about the specific details of our lives. Yes, this world is severely broken, but God is here. And I'm not going to stand up here and be the judge like, oh, this issue is God's wrath. This one is not. That, that's not my place. At the end of the day, what I know is that whether we're experiencing hardship because of our own choices, our own sinful choices, or because we merely live in a broken world, at the end of the day, God wants to break us down. He wants to feel our weakness so that we would turn to him. So that we would put our hope and trust in something that's sturdy. Something that can withstand the messiness and the brokenness that this world is. Okay, related to these sores being on those marked by the beast, I want to highlight how the beast seeks. And this is going back a number of weeks, how the beast seeks to entice us with big promises and miraculous works. So the beast wants to do marvelous things, impressive things, and he wants to create a sense of marvel in us. When we look at him, he wants to lure us in with supposed blessings. He, he wants us to look at him and think, that is impressive. I want to follow that. It's all a lie. What's evident here is how the mark of the beast leads to cursing. This mark, which is depicted as what the cool kids do, so if we go back, Revelation 13, it's talking about the mark of the beast. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So many people, the picture that we're given in Revelation is many people will look at the beast and say, I like that. I'm drawn to that. I want that. So the grotesque nature of the beast is not so much what it looks like, but the evil that it's doing. Okay? And this is the deceit of Satan. But whatever impressive thing the beast might be trying to carry out in this world, it is unable, the mark of the beast is unable to provide anything worthwhile when God's wrath is poured out. What we see in Revelation is that the mark of the beast, as it pertains to God's wrath, the mark of the beast is impotent and it's damning. There's this reality that the things that the mark of the beast might offer to us here and now, today, might be temporarily beneficial. But Revelation wants us to see that ultimately we will not be satisfied. We will be filled with misery and discomfort. Okay, the second and third bowls deal with water turning into blood. At various points in Revelation, it's made clear that Christians will suffer and they will die because of the name of Jesus. Persecution is going to happen. Those who persecute and kill Christians are depicted at various points in the Bible as bloodthirsty in their hatred. They are bloodthirsty to 
destroy Jesus, to destroy his church. Here we see them having no choice but to drink blood. In a sense, they're getting what they wanted. Or or maybe a better way to say it is they're getting what they thought they wanted. But when they go to drink the blood, it's not going to satisfy them. It's going to repulse them. John hears specific commentary from an angel regarding all of this. Verses 5 to 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we can read this, and, and like we might feel sickness in our stomachs. Some of us are probably repulsed by this idea. But what we're learning here, despite the repulsion, that these are true and just judgments. This is what people deserve. So as messy as this world might get, as fractured as our lives might become, God is sovereign over all of it, and he will set things right. The things that are wrong, he will set right. The things that are broken, he will put back together. In the fourth bowl of wrath, we see the Son, which is an example of what we would call common grace. Okay, common grace is essentially not saving grace, but common grace means that everyone experiences the good of it. Okay, so with the Son, everyone experiences the light that it gives off. Everyone experiences the warmth that the Son provides. But here we see the Son, which is an example of common grace, becoming an instrument of wrath as it scorches people. Now notice here how those who, are possess- who possess the mark of the beast, notice what they are cursing, who they are cursing. They're not cursing the Son. They are cursing God. So there's an acknowledgement. There's an understanding in these individuals. God stands over the Son. They know this. They see this. They understand His power in some capacity, and yet they are so committed to the beast's agenda. They are so committed to their own selfish desires that even while acknowledging God's power over this, they are unwilling to repent, to turn away from the beast. The fifth bowl then plunges the kingdom of the beast into darkness. Jesus' proclamation in John chapter 8, verse 12 resounds here. It says, Jesus says there, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who are plunged into darkness are those who oftentimes like to hide their wickedness and keep their deeds in the dark. But this desire to be in the dark, what we're reading here is that it will come to a point where these individuals will actually hate the darkness as well. It's not where they actually will really, or we really want to be. We also see a connection here with the painful sores from the first bowl. So notice those who are in the dark 
are those who also have the painful sores. And, and so, again, this, I just mentioned this because this is support for God's wrath being poured out on this group of people. Okay? God's wrath is effective. That, that, that's what we're seeing here, right? In all of these hard-to-read, hard-to-think-about realities, God's wrath is effective. All right. Then John then sees uh, spirits that he describes as looking like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And this is the second beast for those of you who were here a couple months ago. This is pertaining to the second beast. So the symbolic depiction here, it's talking about the Euphrates River drying up. So I want to just comment briefly on this. The Euphrates River, historically, was kind of a common barrier for countries. And so it was a, it was a barrier to war. It, it was kind of a, a normal landmark. Like one country was on one side, another country was on the other. It was hard to cross, okay? So it was kind of, this is where uh, lines were drawn. And, and it was really clear in that regard. So what's being pictured here is that barrier is drying up. The deterrent for warfare is being removed. And now that it's dried up, this appears to be an opening for attack. So evil, Satan, the beast, the dragon that we've talked about, evil, despite the realization of their ultimate defeat and an ongoing inability to destroy God, they are going to still seize on this opportunity and gather as many influential, powerful entities to battle against God. This is the insanity of evil. This is the deceit of sin. Despite sure defeat, they continue to fight. And they recruit others to fight as well. Instead of repenting, instead of turning to the one that they see has power over all of this, they continue to engage in the fight. And this is what we see at the cross as well. How many times did Jesus' opponents seek to catch him in his words? How many times did they seek to catch him physically? They knew Jesus could do things that were unexplainable physically. He had a power that no one else could conceive of, that no one else could touch or compare to. He healed people. He multiplied food. He walked on water. He even raised someone from the dead. And despite his opponents knowing he could raise somebody from the dead when the opportunity was afforded to kill Jesus, whether it was out of ambition or passivity, Jesus was killed. People hop on the board or hop on board the evil train because Satan has deceived them. Sin, evil, is insane. Satan, what he wants to do is he wants us to buy into the lie that he's continually whispering to us, this is the time for you to indulge in whatever it might be. This is the time for you to relax, to take it easy. This is the time for you to marvel at this thing. Or in this case, this is the time for you to attack. So what's being described here? 
This is the culmination of the spiritual battle that has raged throughout the millennia. The spiritual battle that is raging for us today here as well. This is Armageddon. This is Armageddon. This is, this is a symbolic description, okay? This is not a physical location. This is a place of slaughter. This is a spiritual war that is going to end all wars. And in the midst of this brutal reality, in the midst of this battle, what we find is Jesus speaking. Jesus comes and he has a word for John. And he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. I love how Jesus speaks in a way here that is likely to grab the attention of his opponents. A thief knows what it's like to come as a thief. There is this element of surprise. Jesus is going to come like this. And, and he's calling then for his church to stay ready, to be prepared for him to come like a thief. He wants those who are his own to not fall prey to the wiles of Satan, to not go chasing after evil and pleasure. These realities are in Revelation. These are in the Bible to warn us, to say, be on guard, be ready, don't fall into or, or get on this slippery slope toward evil. Jesus paints a picture of pursuing evil as being an activity that leads to nakedness and exposure. Being caught in our sin exposes us in a way that humiliates us. There is imagery here that is pervasive throughout the biblical story. Jesus, as he was beaten before being hung on a cross, he was stripped naked for all to see. He was humiliated. And in this act, he's demonstrating visually how he literally takes our shame upon us or upon himself. Christians, we oftentimes struggle to expose our sin, right? The Bible calls us to confess our sin. This is one of the last things that we want to do. We don't want to talk about the dark parts of our hearts. But when this happens, when we are unwilling to talk about, to share about the darkest parts of our hearts, what it says is we don't really understand the goodness of grace. We don't understand how grace frees us. When we have hidden sin, when, when we have those parts of our lives that we're unwilling to share, to expose, what we are indirectly saying, unconsciously saying, is grace doesn't cover that. But it does. Grace covers everything in our lives. Maybe a better way to say it is our experience of grace hasn't reached deep enough into our hearts. It needs to seep deeper into all of the corners. We need to see the offensiveness of grace. Jesus' sacrificial death actually forgives 
every sin. There's no sin that we need to work off. There's no sin that we need to go back and say, all right, God, you can whoop me for this one. I'm going to work hard for this one. I'm going to pay my dues for this sin. The most indecent, the most vulgar, the most profane sins you have engaged in, only Jesus can forgive them. Hiddenness of sin reveals a lack of faith in Jesus. Our lack of willingness to expose ourselves today will cause us to live in fear, protecting, hiding, pretending all for something that will ultimately be revealed. Our sins will be revealed. They will be exposed. This is what Revelation 16 is telling us. This is where our sin leads, to our feeling naked and exposed. Now, I want to be honest. There are many church cultures that make it hard, make it really hard to confess sin. And many people have been significantly damaged when they have confessed their sin, when they have shown vulnerability. We want to work really hard against that. We, we try really hard to cultivate a culture of grace here. I, I want to lead in that. I want to be the first one to talk about my sin. To say, this is how I struggle. I want to make it easier for you, and I want to encourage you as well, as God frees you up to share the messy parts of your heart, to make it easier for other people. By sharing your mess, it helps other people see, oh, grace does cover that. And so we want to work hard at creating a culture here at Center Church that is full of grace. The gospel frees us to be transparent. It does. I need to grow in this. You need to grow in this. We need to grow in this together. And so I want to call all of us to maturity in believing that Jesus takes our shame. Whatever the shame is in your heart, in your mind, that makes you think, I'm not going to expose this, Jesus took that upon himself. He frees us from that. That's why he was stripped naked. That's why he was exposed, humiliated, mocked on the cross. He took it for you. So my hope is that we can live in freedom, knowing who Jesus is, knowing intimately what Jesus has done for us. And in that, as we confess our sins, we can experience increasing freedom in our own lives. Okay, two points of gospel application for us here as we close. First of all, God's wrath is part of his true and just judgment. It's uncommon today to think that we function, we operate from a position of not knowing. It's not normal for us to function from a position of humility. There are so many experts on so many topics that people have no idea about. And Look at me, I'm an expert on that opinion, right? So, but that's the reality. There are many experts on many topics. I would encourage us to have a slow approach to judging God as it pertains to his wrath. The Bible tells us clearly and repeatedly 
His wrath is just. In actuality, when we think His wrath is probably over the top, what it probably reveals about our hearts is that we have dumbed down sin. We have thought sin isn't that bad. So let us take God at His word and then let Him begin to fill in the cracks around this idea that His wrath is part of His true and just judgment. Secondly then, as we read about God's wrath, my hope is that we can be comforted. We talked in our community group this past week about both the comfort and the terror of God's wrath and and how it's tough to be comforted by God's wrath. Please see in these verses that God's wrath is directed at those who deserve it. Rebellion against God will garner his wrath. Yet, we are not called to taunt others with God's wrath or be uncaring towards those who are currently rebelling. In fact, it's the opposite. Paul in Philippians 3.18 tells us this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. As Christians, if we know what we have been forgiven of, if we understand the wrath Jesus has taken for us, as we look at enemies of the cross of Christ, God's desire is that we would weep over them, that we would not be proud, thinking we're better than them, we would not look down on them, we would not withhold good news from them, but that through our tears, they would hear of the good news of Jesus. At the end of time, God's wrath will be poured out. And this is intended to comfort us. But we are comforted so that we might comfort others.